Turn, if you would, to the third chapter of Matthew. Two weeks ago, we started the book of Matthew. We started with the uh, genealogies where we traced the lineage of Christ back to Abraham and David. Matthew is going to tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies, the promises that were given to Abraham, that through his seed, singular, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He is the fulfillment of the promises to David, that his descendant would sit on the throne forever. Matthew is going to present Jesus as the King, the Messiah, So last week, we quickly did the Christmas story. We had the birth of Christ. We had the three wise men, or the wise men. We think there's three because of the three gifts. There's all kinds of stories that have built up around the wise men. We do know they brought gifts. They came to worship the king. And then Herod got a hold of all of this, and he wanted to kill Uh, the infant Jesus, and so an angel told Joseph to take, and not David, by the way, it was Joseph. For those of you who weren't here last week, I kind of had difficulty getting Joseph and David mixed up. So Joseph took Mary and the child, they went to Egypt to wait for Herod to die, then they came back, and that's where we left it. Picking up in chapter 3, 30 years have passed. 28, 29, something around that, have passed. And we pick up in chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Today we're going to introduce several people, several groups of people, several ideas that are going to stay with us throughout the book of Matthew. We're going to talk about John the Baptist, we're going to talk about the kingdom, we're going to talk about some other groups, and we're going to show that John the Baptist was preparing, as it says, the way for the Messiah. If you go back to ancient times... If you knew the king was coming to visit, all the people would go out and they'd clean up the roads. Not just pick up the trash, they would actually smooth them out. They would make them level. They would make it so that when the king approached in his chariot, his chariot wouldn't fall over. He'd get mad at the town and kill them all. Well, maybe that's an extreme, but... So they would prepare the way for the king to arrive in the town. And what we're going to see is John the Baptist is preparing the way for Christ. Now, Matthew doesn't give us a lot of background about who this person, John the Baptist, was. So, let's remind ourselves, who was John's mother? Elizabeth. Who was Elizabeth? How was she related to Mary? Cousins. So, Mary gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gets pregnant, which is kind of a miraculous thing in itself because 
They were, you didn't say old, did you, J.C.? (laughs) Advanced in years. And Elizabeth had a child, but before that child was born, when Mary and her child approached, John the Baptist in the womb leapt because of being close to Jesus. So, if Mary and Elizabeth are cousins, what does that make Jesus and John? Second cousins. That's assuming that Elizabeth and Mary were first cousins. It doesn't really tell us. So, at some point, they probably met each other. They knew each other. They knew something about each other. But... Jesus is going to show up at the end of this story today. So John the Baptist goes out into the wilderness to preach. Hmm. What is he preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we are just going to have a snippet today about the kingdom of heaven. Because we're going to spend many, many hours in the next year working through the book of Matthew talking about the kingdom of heaven. But let's get the obvious thing out of the way first. If Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is presenting Jesus as the coming Messiah, the king, what does a king need? A king needs a kingdom. Something to rule over. Something over which he has dominion. And John the Baptist says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. It might not be right here, right now, but it's near. And you'd better be ready for it. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Now, it's interesting because in some of the Gospels, we talk predominantly about the kingdom of heaven, and in others, we talk predominantly about the kingdom of God. And there is some discussion, in fact, it's a lively discussion, about whether those are two distinct things. Most commentaries will tell you that the terms are used interchangeably. That maybe Matthew, as a good Jew, would be reluctant to use the word God that frequently, and so would refer to it as the kingdom of heaven, whereas another writer writing to, say, a Gentile community might be more prone to use the phrase the kingdom of God. But in reality, we're talking about the same thing. There are those who believe that there is a distinction between the two where the kingdom of heaven is a broader term covering all of those who are in the kingdom and also those who claim to be in the kingdom. If you remember, and we'll get to it sometime next year, there are parables that talk talk about the kingdom of heaven having wheat, good stuff, and tares, bad stuff. And it's kind of in there together. And the observation is to the disciples, don't spend a lot of time whacking at the weeds right now. When we get to the judgment day, all that's going to work out. But it is an acknowledgement that there are those in the church, for example, who may not be believers. 
But they hang around with us. Why? They just like us, I guess. When we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that there are those who believe that they are believers. But in reality, they're not. And we're going to talk about some of those today because there are going to be those who think that just because they can trace their lineage back to Abraham, they're in the house, they're in the covenant, they're in the kingdom. And we're going to see that that's not entirely true. So the kingdom of heaven is that realm that recognizes that Jesus is the King, the Messiah, and has the right and the authority to dictate, to tell us how we ought to live our lives. A lot more about that to come. But we need to think for a moment, what did the people in Judea at this point in time, at this point of history, what did they want out of a kingdom? Because we're going to see this throughout Jesus' ministry where people have an idea about what the king is going to be, but it's not necessarily the reality that Jesus is coming to actually give them. So what do they want? Top of the list. They want to get rid of the Romans. Okay? I'm going to get a king... Just like David. What did David do? Well, we just finished 21, 22 lessons about the life of David. And what is the one thing that stands out? He was a warrior. He fought. I mean, the Philistines were ruling the countryside. And David came along. He got his mighty men. They put on their sword. He didn't care how big they were or how many they were. He was going to fight them. And he was going to run them out. And it worked the Philistines are gone but the country is knee deep in Romans and the Jews hate them and in fact they probably hate Herod and he's not Roman or Jewish but he works for the the Romans that's close enough the People of the time were looking for a king, a Messiah, to free them from their bondage. But what they didn't realize was the bondage that held them was not the Romans, but it was sin. And that's what Jesus came to deal with. But that's not what they wanted. That's not what they had in mind. So I'm sitting here listening to this guy talk, and we'll have more discussion about how weird this guy is, and he's saying, the king is coming, and they're going, wow, we're going to finally get rid of the Romans. And that's not what's happening. That's not what's going to happen. They had high expectations of the kingdom. They had a high desire to see the kingdom fulfilled because they didn't like the world they were living in. Question. What is the image, the idea that we have in our head about what Christ the King is going to do for us? We have our list of problems. We may not have Romans living 
in the country, but we have our list of problems. We have political issues, we have emotional issues, we have relational issues, and what we want from God is we want all that fixed. What we really want is to keep living the life we're living with none of the consequences. What is it that got the nation of Israel in trouble in the first place? God told them very clearly, you are my people, I am going to defend you, but you are to remain faithful. The Romans occupying the land were just a consequence of the idolatry and ungodliness practiced by the Israeli, the Jewish community. Huh. But just like them, we want the problem solved without getting to the root of the problem. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the wilderness of Judea or seen pictures of it. There taint much there. Okay? It's a desert. It's low, I mean, rolling hills with just nothing there. A little bit of grass to keep, you know, a few sheep alive. Why in the world would John the Baptist go to the wilderness? I mean, let's face it. If you were going to start a religious movement, a political movement, a cultural movement of any sort, you would hire some PR guy or gal, and they would tell you to go to where the people are. Go to the cities. Go where the people are. Tell them what they want to hear, and by golly, you'll go far. Well, he's not going where the people are. The people are coming to him. We're going to see in a moment. They're coming in droves. Why are they coming to him? Well, let's remind ourselves. Two weeks ago, we went back in history all the way to Abraham and worked our way forward. And then last week, we went back to, I don't know, Alexander the Great and worked our way forward to get Herod and where he came from. But let's back up to, well, let's back up to David. Remember, we finished off David. David uh, told Solomon, his son, that he was going to be king, and Solomon became king. And after he did such a great job, uh, the kingdom divided in two, never to be put back together again. The northern kingdom was carried off into captivity. The southern kingdom was carried off into captivity. And all through this, there were a group of people telling the people what they didn't want to hear. Who were these people? The prophets. The prophets. I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, pretty soon you hit the prophets. Isaiah. Jeremiah. Lamentations. No, there was no prophet called Lamentations. <laughs> it was written by Jeremiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, 
Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. What do these people have in common? With the exception of Lamentations. They're all prophets. While the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah were running amok, the prophets came along and said, you're going the wrong way, God is going to punish you. And at some point, God punished them, and the prophet said, but don't worry, he's going to save a remnant. He's going to bring you back to the land. Biblically, there have always been prophets who spoke for God to the people. And we're not saying... I sit here and I study the Scripture and come up with a lesson to teach to you. We're talking God speaks to them and says, go to the people and say this. And while there were true prophets, there were also false prophets. And there was an interesting test in the Bible for a false prophet. You ready for this? This is pretty hard. If what they say doesn't come true... You pick up big rocks and you stone them to death. They only get one shot at it. But there were lots of false prophets. There were lots of false prophets promising good things to the people. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, had a miserable life. Everything he said came true. And there were all these other prophets going, no, it's going to be okay. No, it wasn't okay. But we hit Malachi in the Old Testament, the last book. And for 400 years, there is no word from God. Think about that. This is a nation that at least originally was founded because of their relationship, their covenant with God. And while you may hate the prophets showing up telling you that you're doomed because you're practicing idolatry, at least you know God's paying attention. And then it goes quiet for 400 years. I don't know about you, but I don't know what I was doing 400 years ago. (laughs) And then John the Baptist shows up. And John the Baptist is a prophet. We'll have more discussions about this sometime later, about being a prophet in the mold of Elijah. There's some discussion. They ask, are you Elijah? Yeah, I'm... um, He's Elijah. Not Elijah reincarnated. Elijah in function. And I don't know what it is, okay? I don't think I've ever actually talked to a real live, honest-to-goodness prophet. But there was something about John the Baptist and his message, and the people came... Because they were drawn to him. Were they drawn to him because he was a very sophisticated guy? Huh. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. 
Mm-mm. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Hidalgo, but they're in the desert having a horse race, and the storm of locusts come through, and they're just lying everywhere. And he picks one up, and he bites it, and you know, he has this grim and says, well, they're not too bad once you get back past the head. You know. <laughs> I actually had to go look it up. If you go to the book of Leviticus, where they have the dietary laws, you know, you're not supposed to eat winged insects who walk on the ground. But if their legs have joints in them, you're allowed to eat them, and specifically, you're allowed to eat locusts. And apparently, I, I have no evidence of this at all, but apparently, it was a food that was eaten by poor people. I mean, basically, it's a giant grasshopper. Now, you've hired your PR person to tell you how to start your movement. What have they told you to do? Go to the big city. Didn't go to the big city. Dress well so people re will respect you, you know. People judge you by how you're dressed. And he's wearing the skin of a camel, probably not well tanned, the garment, not him. He was probably well tanned. <laughs> and they ask him what's for dinner, and he offers them some of his locusts and wild honey. Why locusts and wild honey? Because it's lying around. This guy is not the most attractive guy in the world. But you remember who was married to Jezebel? Ahab. Ahab sends some guys out to go get Elijah. Go get him. So 50 guys show up to get Elijah. He doesn't want to go. He zaps him. Well, God zaps him. But one survives and comes back. Says, we, got, we found this guy. And he zapped us. What was he wearing? Camel skin and a leather belt. And he was out in the wilderness. He is the prophet. The prophet is focused on delivering the word of God. He doesn't care what he eats. He doesn't care where he sleeps. He doesn't care what he wears. He is going to deliver the word of God. I can almost guarantee you, if John the Baptist showed up at our church today, we'd be running away from him. Do you see what he's wearing? Can you imagine the smell? But you know what? John the Baptist didn't care. Because John the Baptist was here to say, Thus saith the Lord, and to heck with the rest of you. Because that was the job of a prophet. Huh. 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he was said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We touched on that just a moment ago. Whenever royalty was coming, the people would prepare the roads for them. I mean, we're talking major construction project. If a major king was coming to visit you. So, is John the Baptist telling them, get out your rake, get out your hoe, get out your shovel, we're fixing the potholes? No. This has nothing to do with physical roads. This has everything to do with preparing your heart to recognize and to welcome the Messiah. And what is the first thing you have to do? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does it mean to repent? It means that I'm going this way and I turn and I'm going this way. I am living a life of idolatry, of chasing after anything and everything other than God, and I decide I am going to repent and I am going to return to the direction that I ought to be going. Now, right now, we're just looking at John the Baptist. Okay? We know, because we've read the book of Romans, where Jesus is going to take us in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. We're going to get there. But we're looking at John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the prophet preparing the way for the people, preparing the way for the Messiah who's coming, and he wants to prepare the hearts of the people, and he looks them in the eye and he says, Repent! You're going the wrong way. The problem is not the Roman soldier who lives down the street. The problem is your heart is focused on the wrong thing. Prepare to meet the king. And that's what he's telling them. Don't get out your shovel and your hoe to fix the holes. Read the scripture. Find what God wants from you and do that. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were coming out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Today we're going to talk about three baptisms. Well, maybe today, maybe next week. There is a baptism by water. There is a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there is a baptism of fire. If you remember, when we, get, when we got to the book of Acts several years ago, they would meet people and they'd say, have you been baptized? And they would say, well, we had the baptism of John. Great. But it didn't save them. They needed the Holy Spirit They needed more. To a Jewish community, 
A baptism would be a purification ritual that they would go through. And John is telling them, purify yourself, prepare yourself, repent. And guess what? People were flocking to him. Why? Why were they coming? 400 years of silence. A prophet shows up. A prophet that is telling them to get ready because the Messiah is coming. So I will contend that there were some who were just looking for a king to drive out the Romans. But I'm going to acknowledge that there were many who heard the word of John and go, wow, you're right. My life is really messed up. I need to repent. It says they confessed their sins and John baptized them. Not by the Holy Spirit. More about that in just a moment. I believe they really were repenting. They really were trying to get right with God to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Hmm. Sadducees and Pharisees. We're going to talk about them throughout the book of Matthew. So we might as well figure out who they are. We spend a lot more time talking about Pharisees, okay? Because we have in our mind exactly who the Pharisees were. They were legalistic, trying to beat people over the head with the law. But who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees, if you will, were the sophisticated priestly class that were probably in cahoots with the Romans, I mean, Caiaphas, who we will see much later in the story, the high priest, was a Sadducee. And he understood that, you know, I've got a Roman army around here, and I've got to be nice to them, otherwise, A, they're going to wipe us off the map, but B, they're going to remove me from my office. So they were kind of the sophisticated religious Leaders of the community. Sort of. Because there's lots of discussions about what they did and didn't really believe. I mean, they had taken the scripture and essentially reduced it down to, okay, let's study the books of Moses, you know, the first five books, let's just go with that. That's probably from God. We will see much later they did not believe in the resurrection. You live, you die, you're done. Okay. Uh, why? Well, because there's not a whole lot about the resurrection in the first five books of the Bible. So let's just say it didn't happen. That's why Jesus will play the Sadducees and the Pharisees against each other. Well, Paul will do it because he knows that there's more arguments between the two of them than there probably are between him and them. So the Sadducees were the religious leaders who probably weren't that religious. They were sophisticated. 
In general, it is assumed the people really didn't like them. The Jewish community. Why? Because they were in bed with the Romans. But they were the ones in authority. The Sadducees. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were, for want of a better term, kind of a holiness movement that grew out out of all the captivity stuff. And, you know, you take all the people and you cart them off to Babylon. And in Babylon, there's lots of temptations. There's lots of other things that you can kind of pick up. And you really had to work to maintain righteousness as described in the law given to us by God in what we call the Old Testament. So then they come back, and guess what? The people who stayed around had kind of intermarried with the Samaritans, and they had intermarried with the Greeks. They had a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Worship a little bit here, worship a little bit there. And the Pharisees said, no, this is horrible. We've got to get back to the purity of the law. And in that sense, they were doing what God told them to do. Sometimes we kind of lose sight of the fact that God really did expect them to keep the law. That's why Jesus is going to say about the Pharisees, do what they teach, but don't do what they do because they're hypocrites. And we'll have lots of discussions about the Pharisees. So why are the Pharisees here? Why are the Sadducees here? Surely they're not coming out to be saved. I have this image that throughout all of Jesus' ministry, there's always on the periphery some Sadducees, some Pharisees watching. Watching what's going on. We'll talk about this again when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. You know, what are the people listening to? What is the teacher saying? What is the false teacher saying? How is this going to get us in trouble with the Romans? How is this going to influence my position? How is this going to mess up my life? And that's why they're there. They're spies, if you will, trying to figure out how John the Baptist is going to mess up their lives. Question. How many times in our lives have we been exposed to the teachings of God, the Scripture, and we're looking at it like a Sadducee or a Pharisee trying to figure out how is this going to mess up my life and how can I prove it wrong because it's going to mess up my life. We take that critical attitude of what's most important is my position in the world, Sadducees, or my interpretation of what it takes to be right with God, a Pharisee, and here some prophet shows up and he's going to mess it all up. How can I stop him? We wouldn't do that, would we? The Sadducees were very interested in how they appeared in polite society. Remember, John the Baptist is wearing a 
piece of camel skin and a leather belt, and he's eating locusts and honey. How does he fit into polite society? Not very well. So John the Baptist is sitting here preaching to the people. He's baptizing the people. And looking at the edge back there, he sees some very well-dressed people. And he knows exactly who they are. How did he know? Did somebody run up to him and tell him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are here? Could have happened. Remember, he's a prophet. What do prophets do? They talk to God. God will tell him whatever he needs to know. There's some Pharisees and there's some Sadducees over there. And what does human nature say? What does his PR guy come up and whisper in his ear? Now's your chance. Talk nice to them and you're in. I can get you on Oprah next week. All you've got to do is talk nice to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I might add, by the way, I mentioned that the Sadducees were not real popular with the people. The Pharisees actually were popular. You know, we sometimes think that the Pharisees were literally running around with a club beating people over the head. And they were with the law. But the people respected them because at least they followed the law. So the the Pharisees actually had some popular background, I mean, uh, support. So John the Baptist is thinking of some nice, friendly thing to say to the Sadducees and the Pharisees so they will like him. But you know, you get irritated wearing a camel skin robe all the time. And he looks at them and he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Let's back up to the very first or second verse of this chapter. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If somebody walked up and told you, The kingdom of heaven is is at hand, Would you think that was a good thing? Or would you think that's a really bad thing? You know, we have this basic idea, and this is what he's actually going to tell them, that it's got to be a good thing because I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a good Jew. God is on my side. And if God is showing up, life's going to be good. Do you know what the most blessed words in the Scripture are? Do you know what the most horrible words in the Scripture are? They're the same words. Prepare to meet your Maker. For those who are in a right relationship with God through Christ, the most blessed words there are. Prepare to meet your Maker. But for those who are on the wrong side, the most horrifying experience ever. 
And John the Baptist looks at the Sadducees and Pharisees and said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Not the good things to come. Not the let's wipe the Romans off the map to come. The wrath that is coming. The king is coming. We are preparing the roads, the hearts of mankind for the king to come. But the king is coming to judge. There is going to be wrath. There is going to be blessings. And he looks at him and he says, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, let's just face it. Brood of vipers is not exactly the nicest thing to call somebody. What is a viper? A poisonous snake. They're a group of poisonous snakes. What does that mean? They're poisoning somebody, the people. Their teaching is poisoning them. It is killing them. It is deadly to them. Why? Because it's not teaching them to draw near to God. It's teaching them to try to be like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's killing people. Your teaching is killing people. And do not presume to say to ourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We lose sight of how important it was to the Jewish community that they were the Jewish community. You know, my great, 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 dot, 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 grandfather was Abraham. Who are you? I am a descendant of Abraham. A promise was given to Abraham. I get that promise. That's why they were very big on there's the Jews and there's the Gentiles. Those people. Those people who are outsiders. Those people who have no chance to get into the kingdom. That's why when Paul starts preaching and Peter and all of the rest of them about sending the gospel to the Gentile community and the Gentile community being welcomed into the community of believers, it's like, wow, this is radical. As good Gentiles, we don't realize this. But as human beings, we have this tendency to recognize that my group is better than your group and my group is going to heaven and your group is, well, sorry. How many times have we thought since I was born in the United States and it's a good Christian nation or it was at one time that I must be in? No. Being born in a garage doesn't make you a car. uh, John looks at them and he says, God can pick up that rock right there and he can make a child of Abraham. What are the economic, intellectual qualities of a rock? 
pretty low. They don't know what Paul is going to say in the book of Romans when he starts talking about that not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham is a descendant of Abraham. Esau was born from Abraham, and it didn't do him any good. If you think, he's telling them, that where you are geographically, your genealogy, your status, your friends, your fill-in-the-blank with any other group, if you think that is going to save you, you're in deep trouble. Because none of it, none of it will provide salvation if you do not accept the king that is coming. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is in the hand. The axeman is standing next to the tree. And he is looking at that tree and he's making a judgment. Good fruit, bad fruit. Good fruit, no fruit. And he's going to make a decision. And when that decision is made, he's going to use that axe and he's going to chop that tree at the root. If it bears no fruit or if it bears bad fruit. We will see this directly in the Sermon on the Mount. You shall know them by their fruit. What is he telling to the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Just because you're a descendant of Abraham means nothing. What fruit are you producing? Hmm. We'll have a long discussion about fruit and what it is. But the basic principle is this, because it comes directly from the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Christ in about three chapters, four chapters. If you are a good tree, you will, not you ought to, not you might, you will produce good fruit. The fruit of an individual should be apparent. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that I have to bear fruit? I have to do something in order to be saved. I thought salvation was by grace alone. It is. And when God gives life to you, in this metaphor, you a tree, what are you going to do? You're going to do what live trees do. You're going to produce fruit. The fruit is not the source of the salvation. It is the evidence of the salvation. It is the evidence of what is in the heart. And Sadducees, Pharisees, you have no good fruit. And the axeman is sitting there with the axe in his hand. And he's coming after you. I baptize with water for repentance. That's all I'm doing. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, 
whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, we know who he's talking about, right? That'll be next week's lesson. But look at the picture. I mean, these people lived in an agrarian society. They knew what all this meant. His winnowing fork. You know, you get out there and you start tossing wheat into the air. Okay? To separate the wheat from the chaff, the good stuff from the bad stuff. You take the good stuff and you package it up and you put it in your barn. And the bad stuff you burn to get rid of it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is that a good thing? It is if you're the wheat. We oftentimes want to believe God is love, Jesus is love, Jesus loves everybody, everybody's going to be okay. I think I told you years ago I read an article and it says, you know, we used to argue about salvation by grace alone or salvation by works. Today we just believe in salvation by death alone. You die, you're a good guy, you go to heaven. What this is telling us is the king is coming and there's going to be a judgment, a separation. Throughout this whole book, we're going to see a division. The sheep, the goats, the wheat, the tares, the chaff, the wheat. That that's in and that that's out. And the question is not going to be, who's your father? or your great-grandfather, or your great-great-great-great, that's not going to matter. The question is not going to be, am I a good Sadducee or a good Pharisee? The question is going to be, what are you going to do when the king shows up? And are you going to be prepared? What is the message of John the Baptist? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll pick it up right here next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending the Messiah to save us from our sin. I pray, Lord, that we would continually prepare our hearts, that we would continually acknowledge the kingship of Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.